right, good morning. How are we this morning? Awesome. Great to be with you. Good to see everybody here this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there as we continue our new series, Messy Church. Messy Church, that's the title of our series that we're going to be in for quite a while, so uh, get used to that book. It's a fun book. Somebody said, hey, thank you for having uh, the courage and the bit of crazy that it would take to preach through 1 Corinthians. And I'll tell you, if you read the book, it takes a little bit of crazy to want to open this thing up and to preach it. But I'll tell you, uh, there's nothing that I think is more needed in our culture today. I don't think that there's anything more needed than God's Word, and it's all worthy of of preaching through. So I think it's great. Messy church. So here's the deal. A little bit of a recap here from last week. If you weren't here with us, uh, maybe you're traveling or whatever that may be, I want you to know kind of where we landed the plane yesterday so that you understand where we're going to take off today. And if you don't understand that, it's going to be hard for you to catch the layover and make it to your destination on time. So here we are. A little bit of a recap. Last week, we opened up the book, a little bit of an introduction. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, Acts chapter 18, if you want to know the context of that. Acts chapter 18 would be your context. Paul's preaching the gospel um, to a very secular culture. Um, what you find is that several people believe. In fact, through Paul's ministry, the church grows so big that there's not a space big enough. So most scholars would argue that, that, that the Corinthian church is a collection of house churches because of the power of the gospel and what it did in the, uh, the, the city of Corinth. So a lot of crazy great things happen. Now, Paul has a deep love for this church. Um, while it uh, you know, it was a secular culture and, and all of the things, different things. While Paul spends a year and a half there, man, he, he develops an affinity for this group of people. Um, a very broad and, and, and different kind of group, but he loves them. And that's kind of the nature of the letter of 1 Corinthians. When he's writing, you get a sense of his heart and his passion, his pastoral heart to them. If you ever wondered if Paul has a pastoral heart, it's kind of questionable sometimes because he just kind of hits you with the wrought iron uh, stick and says this is how it's going to be. But he does have a pastoral heart, and that's shown in 1 Corinthians as he demonstrates his love and his passion for them. Now, there's this sense that Paul's shocked at what he hears. He hears the report that the church in Corinth is a hot mess. They've got all kinds of things going on. And Paul's kind of shocked, right? He almost puts them up on a pedestal. Have you ever put anybody or a group of people on a pedestal? Right? He's shocked by what he hears, that, that there's all kinds of things happening. There's divisions in the church. There is a distorted view of God's design on uh, humankind and sexuality. There's all kinds of things that are breaking out. There's heresy and people questioning the nature of the resurrection and if that really even matters. There's disagreements on what Christians are allowed to do and what Christians aren't allowed to do. And all of these different things, Paul says, and, and, that these, should, these things shouldn't be, you know. And, and the weird thing about the, the church in Corinth and kind of get the sense of Paul's expectations for them is that they've got everything. In chapter 1, he writes to them and says that you're living in abundance, that you have all that you need to be successful. You've got all the teachers that you would need. You have all the wisdom, all the knowledge. You have all of the gifts. You have all the resources. You have everything that you need to be a healthy, thriving church. And yet, here I am hearing that you are a mess. And so that is the nature of the 
the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's writing them to help them see that the gospel transforms the mess of our lives. And so that's, that's where we are. So Paul writes this church to help them see how the gospel transforms all five of these major things that they are dealing with. Now last week we dove right into the first issue. We're going to continue that issue on in the next four weeks. And that's the division that's happening in the church of Corinth. And Paul says, hey, this shouldn't be. They're dividing over personality and philosophy of ministry. Some are saying, I follow Apollos. Others say, I follow Paul. Some people say that I follow Peter. Some people of the more spiritual type says, well, I just follow Jesus. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. The church is not about personality. It's not about a philosophy of ministry. But rather, we all should be centered on Jesus. We ought to be centered on the gospel, which is really the heartbeat of what we're going to talk about today. Now, keep in mind, the primary theme all the way throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is what Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 10. So look there at chapter 1, verse 10. It's important that you see this. I would encourage you to underline it, star it. If you write in your Bible, that's what I would do because this is kind of the underlying theme that runs throughout 1 Corinthians. And Paul says, I appeal to you. So he's pleading with them that they would agree and that they would be of the same mind and of the same judgment. So what Paul is saying is, is that I want you to agree and I want you to be of the same mind and the same judgment of all of the things that he is going to correct in them as we unpack this letter. Okay, so the same mind and the same heart and the same judgment. That does not mean that we all have to agree on everything. Paul is not saying that uh, unity equals unanimity, right? That we have to agree on every single thing. Kind of reminded me of a couple of weeks ago. I had an opportunity, this really cool opportunity, kind of a bucket list item. I got to go to the Sugar Bowl. How about that? Pretty cool. I know. And so here I am, a Red Raider. So I hang it on my wall. That's where my money, my money went. I'm sitting there, and I'm in burnt orange and loving every bit of it. And I started thinking. I said, you know, in this stadium, all of these people who are wearing burnt orange all come from different backgrounds. They have different perspectives on all kinds of things. They have different cultures that they've come from. And if you know anything about Austin, there's a reason why they say it's weird. And so here's a collection of all these people we have so many differences, and yet for one moment, we are all on the same team. And I thought, you know, maybe the church could learn a little bit about this experience. Right? We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different walks of life. We have different personalities. We have different perspectives on life. We all grew up in a different, different way. I mean, we have Red Raiders. We have Longhorns. And God help us, we even have Aggies in the room. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Jeez. And so, so the whole point, right, is that we can all come together and we can be on the same team. That team being on Christ's team for the sake of the gospel to see people come to know him, find him, enjoy him, be transformed by him as we are the family of God. And I'll tell you, this is kind of how it plays out in our church. We are a multi-generational church. If you look around, you will see every generation represented in this room this morning. That is hard to do. That's why a lot of churches don't do it. It's incredibly hard to do. We've got kids in here, so it's a little bit noisy. I know, it's hard, right? Some people get frustrated by that. It's messy, but discipleship is messy, 
right? We have generations here who um, have a certain perspective on life. We have another generation who sees life completely different. And yet, God has called us all to be in the same room, to be on the same team. And it's messy. But it's okay. I, you know, I was thinking through all this whole the messy church thing, and I thought, well, God, do we want to be a messy church? Why can't we all just get along and just be happy? <laughs> but then I thought, well, you know, there's something kind of great about being a messy church. The great thing about that is, is that God is putting us all together to rub shoulders with one another, to learn from one another, so that we are sanctified, so that we may, are made to look more and more like him. And we don't do that if we all agree on everything. The hard part is, is that we're challenged when there's disagreements and different things. We don't see the world the same way. The hard part is, is not to want to just get up and leave, but to stick in. And so there's several of people in this room that I've chatted with who might disagree with this point or that point or something that's going on, and yet they have stayed. And I tell you, that is powerful because when we stay together, and maybe when we agree to disagree, we grow we get stronger, we get healthier as we move towards the overall mission of helping people know and follow Jesus. And that's what we're about this morning. So Paul's hope is that we would agree and that we would be of the same heart and the same mind. Now, the major problem that you're going to see in Corinth this morning is that the the church in Corinth started elevating man's wisdom above God's wisdom which you can imagine is a little bit of a problem. Because if my wisdom is greater than God's wisdom, well, God's no longer God. I am. If I know better than him, we have got a huge problem. Uh, And you've got a huge problem. If you think that you know better than God for your life, you have a huge problem. And it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you. By the way, uh, pride comes before the fall. And I know that none of you, including myself, struggle with pride. That's a whole nother, whole, nother, whole nother sermon. So here we are. Verse 18, pick up with me this morning. <clears throat> Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly, it's craziness, it's ludicrous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Then Paul asks a great question. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? In other words, where is the most intellectual, best, well-spoken person in the room? Where are they? Show up. Let me see you. And Paul says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It therefore pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Paul says, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, thing, to, bring to nothing things that are. So that, it's a purpose statement, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as you know from last week, there are divisions that are breaking out throughout the church. But here, Paul kind of takes us into the deeper-rooted problem, and that is that they are viewing man's wisdom over God's wisdom. Knowing that Paul is a theology guy, his people are arguing that we don't have enough theology in our teaching. What we really need, Paul's group would say, is we just need more theology in our preaching and teaching. We need more theology in Sunday school. We need more theology in small groups. What we really need is a healthy dose of systematic theology. That's what what we need. Now, Apollos' group, Apollos being a great speaker, great order, His group of folks are like, no, 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 that is not what we need. Paul is horribly boring, which, by the way, if you didn't know, Paul was the guy who was speaking when the guy fell asleep and then fell out of a window and died. (laughs) So Apollos' people is like, no, 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 we don't need more theology. What we need is more eloquence. We need great speakers. That's really, really what we need. Now, Peter, being kind of a boots on the ground kind of a guy. Peter's a real practical application. Peter would say, no, no, we don't need more theology. We don't need more eloquence. We don't need great speakers. Really what we need is strong leadership. Strong leadership. We need good practical application. That's really what we need in Sunday school. That's what we need to be teaching on. And so what's happening here is that these groups of people are breaking up based on God's uh, are based on, on, on man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. They are leaving the, the nature of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel to make things and elevate things in a way that, that may not be helpful. And that's why Paul says, okay, here's, here's what we got to do. We need to agree on these three things. So he makes three particular arguments and he says, hey, I want, I want us as a church to agree on these things. The first thing that Paul says is that we need to agree that our message must be on Christ, for he is enough. But Paul would argue to the church is what we really need is more of Jesus. We need to center ourselves on him because he's enough. In verse 17 of chapter 1, you've got to kind of got to read that to be able to understand you know the verses 18 through 31. So in in verse 17, here's what Paul says. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul's point here is that what really matters is that we preach the gospel, and that as people hear it and are constantly confronted with the gospel, they are saved and then are transformed. So Paul's saying, hey, we, it's not that we need more eloquence. It's not that we need more theology. What we need is more gospel, and we need to be centered on the gospel because when we are, and we, that's our message, and that's what we're proclaiming, he says that's how people come to know Jesus, and that's how people come to follow Jesus. 
is through the gospel. Now, the methods by which we do that can change. And they have to change, by the way. If we don't change our methods of how we preach the gospel, then eventually we will shrivel up and die. We will be the next church that closes their doors because we didn't change with the culture in order to reach a culture, which is hard. You know, change is hard. When you start changing the church and you start moving things around and, you know, when, when somebody comes in and, and, and alters the, the way we do things a little bit, it's hard. It's hard to do things that a little bit different than how you've always done them. And yet it's necessary, just like it's necessary for everything in your life to change. By the way, did you know that everything in our life is constantly changing? Everything. Every single thing. And while we would like to think that the church needs to be the one thing that doesn't, it has to change too. It has to or else we will die. But here's the thing that never changes. The gospel never changes. Our methods may change, but the gospel never changes. Now, the famous Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once said this. He said, whatever you win them with is what you win them to. To think about that. Whatever you win them with is what you win them to. Meaning that if we build a church and we build ministry on you know, creative methods, or we wow them with eloquence, or we have incredible speakers, or we blow them away with deep theology, what Paul is saying here is that there's a danger that we win them to those things rather than winning them to Christ. So if we win them to eloquence, what happens if something happens to that speaker? Well, it wouldn't be healthy because people would leave. If we win them with, with deep theology, which is never a bad thing. I think I'd probably always want to be deep than I would be wide. But if we win them with deep theology, what happens if we have somebody who doesn't have deep theology? Right? What happens to the person who doesn't relate to that, who just became a brand new Christian and they're going, man, I don't even know how to tie my shoes, much less understand the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, right? What happens if we win them to, um, you know, I don't know, uh, other creative media, if, you know, we, there's a whole, by the way, there's a whole form of a belief that says that we just have to get them in the doors, and if we just get them in the doors, then we'll get them saved. You know, but then that punts on the responsibility that we have to disciple them, and so if we build a church on that, then we're going to lose people because we're not going deep enough. And so you see the problem here, right? That at the end of the day, if we're not centered on the gospel, and if that's not the centerpiece of everything that we do, Paul would say, then we're not a healthy church. We're not a healthy church. Everything we do must come from and through the gospel, so the second thing that Paul says is, then let us recognize that the gospel challenges cultural assumptions and shatters human logic. Yet nevertheless, it's God's power for salvation and transformation. What you see here in Paul's letter as he speaks of both Jews and Greeks is that, that the gospel challenges their cultural assumptions. In fact, in verse 18 he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
It says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So to the unbelieving mind, when they hear the gospel, it sounds like utter foolishness. But to you and me who have given our hearts to Jesus, who have been awakened by the Holy Spirit, man, it's incredible. And it's something that I never can get enough of. In fact, it's not just this one thing that opens the door of salvation, but man, it's my transformation as well as I, as I look to the cross for not only my salvation, but also my transformation. I mean, the gospel is, it's everything. It's above all. It's above all. That's a reality for you and me. For an unbelieving mind, it seems like utter foolishness. I'll give you an example. Paul gives this example. He says that the Jews are looking for signs. They're looking for a reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And you have to understand, right, for the Jews, they're looking for a military king. They're looking for somebody who comes to the earth. That their version of the Messiah that they had grown up hearing about was, was a guy who was going to show up and, on a white horse. And he was going to be a political and military king. And he's going to set up a new world order. And they're going to reign alongside of him. That was their view of the Messiah that was going to come. So their gospel looks a whole lot different than a carpenter. Looks a whole lot different than a guy who doesn't have a place to lay his head. Looks a whole lot different than a guy who ends up dying and hanging on a Roman cross. The one who they thought was going to defeat the Romans have now defeated him. It looks a whole lot different. What they missed, of course, is the fact that at the cross he did defeat the Romans. But more than that, he defeated sin and death. But they missed that. Because they were looking for something else. See, it shatters our human logic. For the Greeks, uh, they sought knowledge and wisdom. They felt like that, that the gospel was all about knowledge and wisdom. And they couldn't, in their world, in their box that they lived in, they could not fathom the fact that a God would have anything to do with his subjects. So how in the world could the God who created the world also be the same God who comes to the earth who actually dies at the hand of the, of, of, of the God's subjects. It's just foolishness to them. That's just ridiculous. How can that be God, and how can that God be worthy of my worship? You see how it's foolishness to a culture who doesn't believe, and yet to a people who do believe it's the power of God for salvation and then to transformation. I started thinking about our own culture, and I think about people who cannot reconcile faith and science. They hear the gospel and they can't get over the fact that, well, but the world is billions of years old. I can't get over a, a biblical world. I can't, get, I can't get over a humanistic worldview for a biblical worldview. I've heard that a lot when I've shared the gospel with people of like, how could you possibly believe this stuff? You know, you have to forfeit science in order to believe these things. By the way, you don't, just so you know, so don't panic, right? You don't have to forfeit science. In fact, I love it, the fact that more often than not, science is catching up to the Bible. <laughs> and that's very true. There's people even today who struggle with the fact that the gospel is a free gift. There's entire denominations built on having to work for your own salvation, a stumbling block to understand that the gospel is free. You didn't do anything to earn your way to it. How in the world can you do anything to sustain it? 
Right? The gospel is free. It's a free gift of God to you. While you didn't deserve it, at your worst, Christ came and he died for you. That was a free gift. There's nothing that you could do to earn it. And yet, it's hard to believe. It's a stumbling block for a lot of people. There's a lot of questions. We ask these questions all the time. How can I believe in a God who allows suffering into the world? That's a stumbling block for people who hear the gospel. How can I believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people? After all, he killed his own son. How can I believe in that? How can I believe in a God who would send good people to hell? You hear these questions and to an unbelieving world, this is the things, these are the stumbling blocks that they have and they have them because the Holy Spirit hadn't opened up their eyes and opened up their heart to believe the truth of the gospel. It's foolishness to the world. That's the reason why they make fun of us. That's the reason why people will say that Christians, you know, their God is a crutch. I've heard that oftentimes. That's the true reality that you and I face. It's, it's foolishness to a world who doesn't believe. Now, keep in mind that it's not bad to ask these questions. In fact, I think it's good to ask these questions. There's an entire uh, discipline dedicated to studying these questions and defending Christianity. It's called apologetics. It means to have a defense. But hear me, because I think this is important. I have never heard of somebody arguing somebody into the kingdom. I've never heard of that person. If you are that person, I'd love to meet you. It's not to say that these questions don't matter, but the way that somebody is saved is not through these questions. These questions may be a tool to get to salvation, but the way that somebody is saved, the way that somebody's heart is transformed is through the power of the gospel and that's it. That's it. Now, from there, we can work through these awesome things and these awesome questions and this deep theology, but we have to understand that it all begins with the gospel message. That's, Paul, that's what Paul's saying. And he says, if we're going to agree on anything, we've got to agree on that, that that has to be the centerpiece of everything that we do. Everything that we do. Now, the third thing that Paul says, his argument is, then let us agree that the gospel should exchange our arrogance for humility toward God and one another. So as we center ourselves on the gospel message, Paul says it ought to produce in us humility both toward God and toward one another. Verse 27, here's what Paul, Paul dives into this. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. In other words, consider your salvation. That's what he's saying here. Think about your salvation. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But listen to this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why would God do that? Well, he answers the question. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's important for everybody in the room to understand that God did not save you because of your wisdom, because of your eloquence, because of your good looks, because of anything that you have to offer him. 
God did not save you because of our creative means of ministry. God did not save you because the person who was preaching was an eloquent speaker or the person who shared the gospel with you in your home was a great salesperson. I think we have that temptation to think that I can't share the gospel because what if I say it wrong? (laughs) That's making your wisdom and your abilities greater than God's wisdom and God's ability. God did not save you because of those things. He saved you simply because he loved you. And he loves you. And he sent his son for you. Not because of anything that you bring to the table, but because of everything that he has brought to the table. That is the most important thing that you and I need to hear this morning. And when we recognize that there's nothing that I can do, it's not my noble birth, it's not the amount of money that I make, it's not what I own, it's not anything that I offer, it's not my work ethic, it's nothing. Paul would say that all of our good works are filthy rags before a holy God. Nothing that I do can earn my salvation. The only reason why Paul says that you and I are saved is because of the love of God in Christ Jesus available to you in the gospel. And that ought to then produce a unique unique humility in your life both toward God and toward one another. Now he continues, he concludes his thought. He says, and because of him, so because of Jesus, because of God, what he has done in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul says that in Christ, we now have God's wisdom. We have access to his wisdom. We now stand in his righteousness We stand in the redemption of God and in the sanctification that he promises. So, again, recognize this, that while you didn't have anything, that you didn't bring anything to the table, in the discussion of salvation, you didn't bring anything to the table, you also don't bring anything to the table when it comes to wisdom. You may be the smartest person on the planet, and yet, in comparison to God, you ain't got nothing. All wisdom comes from God. All truth is com- comes from the Lord. And everything that we have is a gift from him. And so we stand in God's wisdom, but also we stand in his righteousness. I can't get over this. I hope you can't get over this. That on the cross, all of my effort, all of my striving, all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my poor decisions, all of my lies, all of my attempts to make you think I'm better than I am, all of that, all of that was given to Jesus on the cross. Do you realize that? And that in exchange for all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your worrying, all of your anxiety, all of your depression, all of those things, poured out on Christ. And then in exchange for that, he gives you his righteousness. So God now looks at you according to Christ and his righteousness, not you and your mess. (laughs) And it's a free gift. It's a free gift. And then, to make it even better, Not only do we gain his wisdom, Paul says, 
not only do we gain his righteousness, but we also gain his sanctification, which means what he promised to begin in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ, which means that in your life, God sees you as perfect. But there's a day where our theology will match our reality. And there really will be a day that I don't have to convince myself that that's true. And that I will stand in absolute perfection. <laughs> and hear me, that has to produce in you a peculiar kind of humility to God and to one another so that we can agree to disagree and we can come together going, hey, you're a mess, I'm a mess, you're broken, I'm broken. But man, what we can all agree on is that because of the gospel, because of Christ, I have his wisdom, I stand in his righteousness, and that God is perfecting me. And so we don't hold each other's weaknesses against each other, but rather we seek to love one another because the gospel transforms our hearts and allows us not to see us as who we are, but as the people that we are becoming. And man, that is a healthy church. A healthy church is one who sees people not as who they are, but by by who they are becoming in Christ, because of Christ, because of the gospel. Wow, that's a healthy church. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians, is that in their mess, God is transforming them, trying to help them see, not to look at one another as we are, but look at who we are becoming in Christ. What an invitation. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Lord, thank you for the gospel and the fact that we can agree, that we might not agree on a whole lot of things, but Lord, we can agree on that. That were it not for grace, were it not for Jesus, where would we be? God, we are all imperfect people who worship a perfect Savior asking for you to transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, that as we take a step towards you, God, you would transform us from the inside out and that you would unite us and grow us as a church. Lord, that we wouldn't take the easy way out, but we would step into the hard things and that we would work together, that we would learn from one another and that we would approach each other with a gospel humility. To have humility between, before you and before one another and that in that, Lord, you would transform us again, into the image of Christ and that you would make us into a healthy, thriving, gospel-centered church. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.